Please turn in your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. For those of you who are not with us every week, we've been walking through the book so far, uh, and we have arrived partway through chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a bit of an introduction. Follow the leader. Simon says, red light, green light. Now those games have two things in common. First, in order to play them, you have to listen to whoever the leader of the game is. And second, only kids play those games. So why do you never see adults playing red light, green light, uh, Simon says, or follow the leader? Well, to be honest, adults don't want to listen to anyone else. They don't want to follow anyone else. And a child is fine following someone else in the game. But at some point, something clicks in the human brain long before teenage years. And the thing that clicks is, wait, I don't have to listen to other people. I can do whatever I want. And just like that, a fun childhood game is ruined. So because of sin and the fall, we are natural rebels who, in some sense or another, we despise authority. But because God has put authority in every level of our lives, in every place in our lives... Christians must learn to honor those who are in authority. And ultimately, we must do so as we learn to submit to the true king. And because Jesus is the true king, it's him you must really follow. So with that introduction, let's look at 1 Samuel. We'll start in chapter 10, verse 17, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 11. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabash Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, 
that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus, you, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And that's where we'll stop for today. So we're going to break this down into two points. First point will be the king coronated, looking at the portion from chapter 10. So as we dive into this text, we're again faced with this question that's been building in 1 Samuel. Who is Saul? Is he good or is he bad? Now, some commentators think that he is presented in good ways in these chapters, and others think he's presented almost completely negatively. But there is another option, which is that we should see him as a bit of a mixed character throughout all these events. There are some bad elements about Saul, but there are some good ones as well. And we will see examples of both good and bad in this passage. But with that said, we unfortunately begin on a bad note. So back in chapter 10, verse 7, Samuel, after anointing Saul, had said to him, Do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And in the context, we believe that it means Saul was supposed to go and fight the Philistines at their outpost near Mizpah. And in so doing, he would take on the role of kingship for which he had just been anointed. But instead, Saul went home and he kept his anointing secret from literally everybody. So therefore, Samuel called all the leaders of Israel together at Mizpah in order to force Saul's hand. Mizpah was the political and military heart of Israel at this time, and it was right next to Philistine territory. It was the location from which Samuel had prayed for Israel so that the Lord gave them a great victory over the Philistines many years before this. And now, 
Samuel called them together in order to answer their request for a king from chapter 8. Now, normally, when you ask for something and you get that exact thing, it's a good thing. I hope you all normally think that anyway. But here, the language is not bright and the language is not happy. In verse 19, Samuel told the people, Today you have rejected your God. This is what was a prophetic indictment against Israel for their sin in re- rejecting Yahweh. Israel wanted a king and a king they would receive. But the reason they wanted a king was that they were rejecting the Lord. They thought that they could cast God off, the one who had brought them out of Egypt, the one who had redeemed them and rescued them again and again, who had brought them into the land. And while the Lord was going to give them a king, he had no intention of giving up his supreme reign over Israel. And we see this contrast in the passage in verse 19. Israel sought to reject God, and yet they had to present themselves before Yahweh. He was not abandoning them, but giving them, and he was not abandoning them and giving them over to their sinful desire. Rather, he would rule and reign over them by selecting their king for them. But as they go through the process, a small problem arises as God shows them who this new king is. The lot falls down to Saul, but they can't find Saul anywhere. And did you notice how they react? I love how they react to this problem. Where is he, God? Is he not here yet? Did his donkey break down on the road? Well, adding to the comedy of the situation, the Lord answered and said, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Well, why wouldn't the future king of Israel be hiding behind some suitcases? But no one seems to even notice that odd behavior. They bring him out. Everybody sees how tall he is. And Samuel basically says at that point, Look at this guy. Have you ever seen anything like him? And all the people agreed with that. And they yelled, long live the king. According to his height, according to his looks, Saul is the man for the job. Pay no attention to whatever odd behavior that was a moment ago. But now we need to ask the question, why is Saul hiding in the baggage? Rather than with the people when the lots were being cast. Well, something that Saul was hiding out of a sense of humility. He didn't want to seem too eager, too greedy to take on this new role. So he thought he should just vacate the scene while the lots are being cast. But frankly, I have a difficult time believing that he was hiding out of humility here. And the text seems to strongly hint against this view as well. You know, when little kids first start learning to play hide and seek and they're really just terrible at it. You finish counting, you turn around, and they're trying to hide behind a cup. Yeah, I think that's kind of the image we're supposed to see here. Here is Saul, a full-grown man, a head taller than anyone else in the country, and he's trying to hide behind some luggage. Odd. The comedy of this situation alone leads us away from commendable motivations for Saul. Saul is hiding because he knows what is coming, and he's afraid. He has been running from this new role ever since Samuel anointed him, and nothing has changed yet in his heart or mind. He was afraid to take on these duties of kingship, so he hid. Now, on the bright side, his meekness in this situation allowed for God to again tell them that Saul was indeed the man. The Lord had not erred in his decision here. The the lots that Israel cast were not faulty. As Proverbs 16.32 says, the lot 
is cast into the lap, but his every decision is from the Lord. There's no such thing as chance. There's no such thing as luck. They didn't accidentally roll for Saul. The Lord had chosen his man, and there was no opportunity for anyone in Israel to deny it. This was not Samuel's choice on his own. It was definitely not what Saul wanted. God had chosen his man to be the king. And to the people's credit, they accept their new king. They accept God's choice here. And so for the first time, we see Saul being called king. Long live the king. Now remember also that the root for the word ask, the root of the Hebrew word for ask, is the same as the root for the name Saul. So Israel asked for a king from God, and now he gives them Saul, the one for whom they asked. And so even as Samuel presented the new king to Israel, he also sets up laws around which this new king will operate. And these instructions, they were likely based off of Deuteronomy 17, which gave laws concerning the future kings. But we're not told exactly what it is that Samuel said. But what we do know is that Samuel was concerned with one overwhelming problem. The king of Israel could not behave just like the kings of the surrounding nations. He had to be fundamentally different. He had to honor the Lord in everything he did. Saul could not be a selfish despot and abuse the people as God's king. Israel was not to be an absolute monarchy where the king has full power. It had to be a limited one where the king and the people were all subject to the law of God. So having written down all these commands, Samuel placed them before the ark of the Lord in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. And notice there the connection between government and worship in Israel, that they are connected from the outset. Well, yet another oddity in this passage is that Saul, through all of this, is completely silent. Now, one might expect some sort of speech from a new king, but instead he was silent and returned home, albeit now with a military guard and with supporters whom the Lord had led to go with him. But we also see in the text that not everybody supported Saul. We're told that some men opposed Saul and they refused to give him a gift. Now, literally, the Hebrew calls them sons of Belial. And that's the same phrase that Eli wrongly used for Hannah when he thought she was a drunk. And that was later used of Eli's own wicked sons. The term applies to those who are very wicked, who are absolutely good for nothing. Now, these men, they may have had legitimate concerns about Saul. After all, he had acted very oddly leading up to this point. But to refuse to give a new king a gift was essentially the same as open rebellion in the ancient Near East. Talking about the king, Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then in Psalm 68.18, it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Kings received gifts as a recognition of their authority. So despising that authority means that you deserve death for rebellion. And these men were being very, very foolish. But there was something else going on beyond just disliking or not trusting Saul himself. 
The real problem in the hearts of these men is that they were rejecting God's right to choose and select a king for Israel. They were sinning against Samuel and Saul, yes, but God is the one who chose Saul. Therefore, they were really openly rebelling against Yahweh's rule over his people. Now, most kings would have squashed these men and put them to death for their evil right then and there. So why does Saul hold his peace and ignore them? And the Hebrew language there is almost like he's just not even paying it. He didn't even hear. He just didn't even pay it any mind. Was this an act of fear or was this an act of patience, knowing that they would get what they deserved in the end? Well, we've seen some negative aspects to Saul already in this passage, but we're going to have to wait to see if that was a good or bad move until the next point. But you need to know also that rebelling was not just a sin that those rebels committed way back then. To rebel against God or those he has put in place is ultimately to rebel against him. Kids, when you disobey your parents, it is rebellion against God. When you refuse to submit to church leadership that you've taken vows to, that is rebellion against the Lord. Deciding you don't like a certain government and that they are therefore illegitimate and you don't have to listen to them is rebellion in the heart. Keep a close watch over your hearts that you don't rebel against the Lord. Those idols of pride and control, they sink in quickly and they're hard to spot. And in the blink of an eye, you can get yourself into full amounts of trouble. So be watchful over yourselves in that regard. Point two, the king established is looking from chapter 11, verse 1 through 13. So once again, it appears that some time had passed and still Saul had done nothing to actually take control or to ascend the throne, so to speak. He was back home farming just as he had been doing before, just as if nothing had even changed in Israel. Before, Samuel had moved to force Saul's hand to make him the anointed king. But now the Ammonite, Nahash, will force Saul's hand. So this wicked leader, he attacks the city of Jabesh Gilead, which is on the east side of the Jordan in the territory of Gad. And this man, Nahash, he was firmly in control of the situation with his army, and he knew it. Now, normally in this situation, a city could offer peace. It could offer terms of surrender. They could literally cut a covenant to serve an invading army as vassals, to be their slaves, essentially. And in such a ceremony, it's called cut a covenant because they would literally dismember animals, cut them apart, and they would stand, the vassal would stand in between the animal parts while swearing fealty. And they did that because it was a sign of what would happen if they broke their vows. If they broke the covenant that they were making, they too would be torn just like the animal. So the Israelites propose a treaty of peace. But the terms they got in reply is not what they expected. And quite frankly, they were horrendous. Nahash, he wanted to humiliate the people of Israel. He wanted to ruin the people of Jabesh Gilead. Removing their right eye would not just make it harder for them to see. It would make them completely incapable of fighting with a shield. You hold a shield in your left arm, meaning if you hold up your shield, you would cover up your only good eye. So that was one way to make sure a population could not fight well. To be honest, you couldn't even use a bow if you lost your right eye. You were basically no good for warfare. His terms 
were beyond cruel because he could frankly do whatever he wanted. This was his arrogant way of saying, who's going to stop me? I can do whatever I want. You can't stop me. Now, if this was made into a movie, this is where the camera would then pan from that scene and go and rest on Saul farming. While Saul has behaved mostly poorly so far in this book, there's about to be a radical change in his attitude. When he heard the news of what this threat was from Nahash, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he was enraged by what the Ammonites were doing. So finally we see a zeal and an energy coming upon Saul that we have not seen yet. This is the same language that's used for the judges of Israel when the Spirit of God gifts them and prepares them for a specific fight. And it is in this new state that Saul goes and calls Israel to follow him and Samuel into battle. But then we have to look at the way he called Israel to gather for battle. And we have to know that it's rather a strange choice. He took likely the same oxen he had just been using to plow the ground. He slaughtered them, cut them into pieces, and he sent them throughout the land of Israel. So the messengers went forward carrying this visceral, visible message along with the words, come fight or this will be your oxen. And the effect of this message was immediate and it was exactly as Saul intended. Israel was unified behind their new king. They were ready to fight as one army. So the result of this strange message was good. But what can we learn from the method that Saul chose here? Well, first, this was likely a sign that Saul's farming career was being formally ended. He was ready to assume the throne and leave his old life behind. Second, as we noted with Nahash and covenants in the ancient Near East, it was normal to cut up an animal as a warning against covenant breaking. Come and fight with us or be punished. That's the message. But third, this was not something without precedent. In Israel, Saul was imitating one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history from the book of the Judges. And this is a rather odd choice since the theme of the book of the Judges is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So is Saul trying to say that those days are ending, that they are coming to a close? That is a possibility. But unfortunately, we have to mention the exact event that Saul was mimicking here. Back in Judges 19, a Levite was traveling with his concubine. And they first went into, or they were passing by what was Jerusalem. They said, hey, let's go in there. And they said, no, we won't go into a pagan town because it was not yet an Israelite town at that point. We'll go on to Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin instead. There it will be safe and will be surrounded by Israelites. So, Something unfortunate happened, though. When they arrived, they go inside, they stay with somebody, but the men of the city surround the house, and they try to get the Levite to come out to do, we'll just leave it at some very indecent and wicked things to him. Now, eventually, the Levite sent out his concubine instead. The men of the city took the concubine, and they raped and abused her until she died. Then, as if the horror wasn't enough already, the Levite took her body, cut it into 12 pieces, and sent it throughout Israel as a call to battle to punish these evil men of Gibeah. Then the tribe of Benjamin sided with the city of the Gibeonites. 
So what then took place was a civil war that almost wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin. And this is where it really is interesting. Many years later, the Benjaminite, Saul, imitates that sign. Thankfully, with oxen this time instead of a human, as a call to go fight the Ammonites as one. It was a call to fight against wickedness, just as the sign in Judges had been a call to fight against evil. So some take all this and they see it negatively, that Saul is choosing a poor method in this. But I think this may actually be a good thing that Saul did. His tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, had once brought division and civil war. But now a man from the tribe of Benjamin is the one uniting and rescuing Israel. And I think the picture is that Saul is the instrument of God to reign in Israel's evil and to redeem them from the hand of their enemies. And the result of all this is that quite literally the fear of God was put into Israel. And they fall in line behind their new king and their prophet Samuel and they march. And so Saul sends word ahead and you can see how much hope his word, his message to Jabesh gives those people. In verse 9, Saul's message was, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. You'll be rescued. Now, when they sent for help originally, I think it was pretty clear they didn't think anyone would actually answer their request for help. But now, knowing that an army is on its way, they send a reply out to their enemy, Nahash. They said, We will give ourselves up to you. Now, the Ammonites heard this. They probably started celebrating right away. They were going to take the city, humiliate their opponents, and they wouldn't even have to swing a sword to do it. It was a huge win. If only it were actually true for them. But in the Hebrew, the the reply of the men from Jabesh is actually very ambiguous. It's something closer to, we will come out. That's actually all it really says in the Hebrew. So the phrase could mean that they're going to come out to surrender, as it undoubtedly was originally, and that's how Nahash took it as well. But it can also mean that they're going to come out to fight. So some commentators think that the men of the city are lying to deceive the enemy here, but they said exactly what it was they were going to do. I don't think it's their fault that Nahash took it the wrong way. Uh, But really, this was a very clever response to Nahash to completely put the Ammonites at ease in this situation. And the effect is that Nahash and his men, they were completely caught off guard when Saul showed up. More than likely, much of the army would have been unprepared and possibly possibly even drunk or hungover from celebrating the night before. And it is on that morning, expecting triumph, that Nahash and his men were annihilated by a three-pronged attack. Saul and his army, they deploy some impressive tactics And they completely rout Nahash and his entire army so that not even two people are left together anywhere. They win an overwhelming victory and rescue the people of the city just as Saul had promised. So with victory in hand, Saul has now proven his ability to lead and fight for the people of Israel. That means something bad for somebody, though. The men who had opposed him were in trouble now. Saul had proven himself. And they were wrong. So the people, they come to the prophet Samuel and they ask him to bring forward those men so they can be put to death for opposing the king. But did you notice that before Samuel could answer, Saul jumped in and gave an answer. Saul had been running from his calling all the way up to this point. He had been hesitant to do anything. He hid 
to avoid being king. But now he's suddenly ready to take his new role seriously. And his response is rather shocking. He said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Is this piety from Saul? Is this zeal from Saul, the son of Kish? Where did that come from? He had every right to have these rebels put to death for opposing his rule, and he chose instead to show mercy. So while his initial refusal to not address them may have been out of weakness, here it is definitely a gracious act of mercy given in power. And I think it's an appropriate one because when God has done something so amazing in rescuing his people, I think killing becomes an improper response in this situation. But furthermore, for Saul, it showed that he valued the lives of Israel, that he was a merciful leader. Saul was definitely an imperfect man with many shortcomings that we've already noted. But here he emerges from his lethargy. He steps into his new calling with zeal and even displays some piety. This is Saul's high point in the book of 1 Samuel. God's anointed has rescued his people and given the Lord glory for the victory. Did you notice that? Saul gave God glory for the entire victory. What a character arc from the starting point of Saul to this moment. So what is the bigger picture of this passage? While Saul has had a rocky history up to this point, he is God's anointed king. The Lord chose him to lead and to rescue his people. And in this passage, Saul foreshadows what Christ did as the anointed one. Jesus was born to be the king and the savior of his people, Israel. Jesus was followed by crowds and hailed as a king by many and yet rejected by some too. Saul was God's instrument to save Israel from her enemies through physical warfare. But Jesus came in order to save us from our sins through sacrifice. Saul shed the blood of others to rescue Israel from her enemies, while Christ shed his own blood to save you from yourself and your own sin. And really, there's a lesson there that blood must be shed in order to save. That's what Hebrews 9.22 says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Saul could not rescue Israel from their sins. He was a type of Christ, but he was not the Christ. He could show mercy to those rebels, but he could not save them. Only Jesus can save. And we see another picture in this passage of ongoing warfare as well. Saul called Israel out to battle through this graphic image of a dismembered oxen. And this is similar to that Hebrews 9 idea, but a little different at the same time. The sign was meant to sober and focus Israel at the task at hand, at the battle at hand. But actually in communion, we see a very similar picture. The elements represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And through that meal, the Holy Spirit encourages us, it builds us up, it makes us sober-minded, and it makes us focused on our Christian walks. There's a spiritual war taking place all the time. And in communion, we have a great encouragement and a reminder. But at the same time, it is a sobering 
reminder. And oh, that the Lord's table would fill us with the fear of God every time we go to it. Jesus gave his life in order to save his people. He came to earth the first time not to condemn the world, but to graciously redeem his church. But one day he is coming again. And on that day, he will have two purposes. First, he will rescue his people out of this world and take them into glory. But second, he will crush the wicked in final judgment. He will defeat all evil far more thoroughly than Saul defeated the Ammonites in 1 Samuel. And unlike those rebels who questioned Saul's authority and and they were spared, there will be no mercy shown on the wicked on the last day. It will be too late to repent and believe then. Jesus is the true king, and there is no other. There is no one else to show fealty to other than Jesus. That's why Psalm 2, 10 through 12, and we'll close with this. It says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Listen to the end. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.